Thank you, brother. You know what went through my head while you were singing that? I just, I get the picture around the throne room of God where we're, we're all in there together around the throne and we're singing. I have a feeling that when we're with Jesus forever, we're all going to be singing and trying to top each other as loud as you are, bro. Like, I'm gonna, we better be prepared for it. We're going to be singing so loud and belting it so, so much. It's going to sound like that, bro. Thank you so much for uh, sharing with us this morning. Really enjoyed that. I'm going to ask you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Some of you may have to go to the table of contents. It is perfectly fine. It's a small little bitty letter and you're going to need to find it. So Joel chapter 2 is where we're going to be. He is one of the minor prophets. And I want to share with you this morning about how fasting is actually connected to confession and repentance. Last week we looked at the fact that fasting... Uh, uh, was actually, you know, as you see it tied up, there are several different uses and, and reasons for fasting in the Bible that we see. Uh, and one of the things we want to see is there is a fasting that is connected to uh, petitioning God directly, like a fervency in prayer. Uh, it is to intensify prayer that we fast alongside uh, praying. But what we're going to look at is a second reason why fasting is given to us in the scriptures uh, from Joel chapter 2. And that is fasting is connected to confession and repentance. And so I'm going to read these verses real quick. We're going to focus in on verses 12 uh, through 17 this morning. Uh, but we're really going to camp a little bit on the first three verses. And so uh, we're going to do that. But I'm going to ask you if you are physically able, out of honor for God's word, would you stand up with me real quick? And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. This is Joel chapter 2 starting in verse 12. Uh, and then let's look at how fasting is connected to confession and repentance. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And here's what God uh, has for us through the prophet Joel. Uh, he says in verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a, whole, a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would use it to feed us as your people. Help us to, to see that from your word, you are our treasure and there is no one greater than you. And help us to see this morning from these verses why Jesus is the only one who can be our redeemer. Help us to see our desperate need for Christ and why it is he alone who rescues. Father, help us to see the importance of fasting and its connection with confession and repentance. Father, help us to be a people who repent and confess sin. Help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus, but not to forsake uh, confession and coming to you when we fail. So, Father, help us this morning to confess sin, to repent of it, and, Father, to turn to you once again and cast our eyes upon Jesus, our King. So, Father, 
Teach your people, feed your sheep. I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for just a few moments. So what's going on in the, in the book of Joel? Well, it's not a very long book, but there's a lot that's being covered. And in Joel chapter 1, Joel shares about a locust plague that invades the land. And it's interesting because Joel seems to be writing primarily to Judah, the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem was located. And if you're familiar at all with biblical history and how the, the kingdoms went once they were divided, how God brought his judgment, we know that in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was actually carried off, taken captive by the Assyrians and sprinkled throughout the nations. They were conquered. And almost 150 years later in 586 BC, the southern kingdom or Judah was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And both of these were told from the Old Testament, from the scriptures, that these were judgments that God had brought upon his people because of their sin, because of their idolatry. That God was not going to allow them to continue to walk in disobedience without punishment. And so he sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians to wicked nations to come and to conquer his people and carry them off into captivity to show them their desperate need for God and why he should be their number one treasure. Now you would expect that the northern kingdom might be taken off guard and say, well, how are we to learn from this? Think about the southern kingdom. There's almost 150 years between the northern kingdom being conquered and then the Babylonians coming and conquering the southern kingdom. You would think that those in Judah would have had enough time to think about what they had done and their need to repent and turn back to God. But alas, they don't and they're carried off into captivity. Now the question that a lot of people have about the book of Joel, is Joel writing before they're carried off into captivity or is Joel writing after they have been? I'll leave that up to you. You scholars can sit down and think through it and figure out what you think about the timing. I personally am leaning towards Joel writing this after they've been carried off into exile. We can have that discussion later, but either way, Joel is pointing us to this connection in chapter 1 between a locust plague and in chapter 2, his coming judgment upon the people. See, I believe Joel chapter 1 is telling us that in the day Joel is writing, they were in the middle of a national catastrophe. That a locust plague had come and decimated the land. Just so you know, I'm grateful that I have not up to this point had to endure a locust plague. I, I don't like locusts. I don't think there's anything endearing about a locust. And apparently, when they swarm like they do in some parts of the world, it is absolutely devastating. There are pictures where within a, just a couple of days, locusts can come in and actually obliterate all plant life, can actually take off every leaf from a tree and leave it absolutely consumed with nothing in in its wake. This is something that they had experienced, and Joel writes in Joel chapter 1 that this locust invasion that had taken place on the land was actually, I believe he's telling us, a picture of what God was going to do on the awesome day of the Lord. God promised there was coming a future day when he would punish sin. And wickedness. And the day of the Lord would be both a tragic day for those who had not repented and turned from their sin, and it would be a glorious day for those who had, because God would not only punish sin, but He would also reward or bless those who had turned to Him. And what we find in Joel chapter 2 is the promise of that future judgment to come. 
And then Joel chapter 3, we see the promise of God to restore those who had turned and repented of their sin. So why do I bring this up? Well, because fasting is not mentioned all over the Bible. It's mentioned in several places. And in fact, I mentioned that fasting is mentioned more often than baptism is actually mentioned in the Bible. But it's interesting, out of 77 occurrences of fasting, we have three of them right here in this small little letter or book of Joel. We see it in Joel 1.14, we see it here in Joel 2.12, and we also see it in verse 15. And so because of this, we are able to see that fasting is something that is a common theme throughout Joel's letter, and it seems to be connected intimately with calling upon the Lord, mourning for their sin, and confessing their sin before God, seeking God's forgiveness. I want to point your attention to Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12 in particular. So all the context we have to Joel is wrapped around God's promised judgment and his call for them to repent of their sin. And as Joel is prophesying specifically to Judah and Jerusalem, we are certainly able to benefit from Joel's interactions and his writing and how God spoke about the seriousness of sin and of his judgment. And speaking of the coming day of the Lord and the judgment that accompanies it, here is what God calls them to. He says in verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why is this return so necessary? Well, if you look at how frightful judgment is and how frightful the wrath of God is, It should lead people to turn away from their sin. We see in Joel chapter 2 verse 1 that the day of the Lord is consumed with trembling. That is marked by darkness and gloom in verse 2. That there's fire and flame, verse 3. Desolation in verse 3. Anguish in Joel chapter 2 verse 6. We're told that the earth itself quakes in Joel chapter 2 verse 10. This frightful day of the Lord is not something to take lightly. It is the very wrath of God poured out against sin. And these words, these terms that describe it are absolutely horrifying. And in fact, we find that there's this depiction and this discussion that Joel brings up at the end of verse 11. After describing this coming judgment of God, he says this in verse 12, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? If wrath is coming, against sin, and this wrath is so terrifying, the trembling, the darkness and gloom, the fire and flame, the desolation, the anguish, the question then comes, who can endure that? Who can be spared from it? That's exactly what Joel answers in verses 12 through 17, and I want you to notice right off the bat after this discussion and these descriptions of judgment, notice what we have in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. What do you find at the tail end of the description of God's coming judgment? Merciful words. There's still hope. Even now, he says. Return to me. See, I I can be very ungracious towards people. That when you blow it, I can be very harsh, very unforgiving, 
very lacking a great deal of compassion. And you would expect God, the king of all creation who's been wronged, who has had people commit cosmic treason against him, that he would be very unforgiving, unmerciful, lacking compassion. I'm so glad that God doesn't operate like I do. Because in verse 12, knowing the people are guilty, knowing they have rebelled against him, knowing they have sinned, and knowing that they deserve punishment, even death for their transgressions, yet now, he says, return to me with all your heart. See, we see the love of God in the yet even now. Yet even now there is still hope. See, God is merciful to us in that he tells us the seriousness of our sin, and he tells us that he is going to ultimately judge all sin. And even in the midst of that, our merciful words of hope and love. And I want you to notice it says, yet even now declares the Lord. See, any hope that we have comes because God tells us it's available. Because God takes the initiative and tells us that hope is available. What a great God. What a great God who shows compassion and declares to us as people who deserve punishment that hope is available. Return to him. So the idea of returning has the idea of going back. It's the, idea, it's the word that we uh, get our word repentance from. He says, return to me with all your heart. Return from what? Turn from what? Well, idolatry. Return from self-sufficiency. Return from sin. Turn away from it and come back to God. Return to me, he says, with all your heart. Listen, I've shared this many times as I've talked with many of you, and that is that Hosea and Gomer are two of the greatest pictures and the clearest pictures of how God relates to us and how we relate to him. And if you're not familiar, you would be blessed to read the book of Hosea today, to be reminded of the fact that Hosea was a man chosen of God to be used for his glory who was married to a woman named Gomer who continually cheated on him and was unfaithful to him with other lovers time after time after time. And you would expect Hosea to respond to his cheating wife by telling her, I'm done with you. I'm through. If you aren't faithful to me, I won't be faithful to you. But instead... Hosea loves his wife, and he strips her of every gift he gave her to draw her back to himself, to show her that he was the one who gave her every good, loving gift. He didn't turn her away. He pursued her and wooed her back to himself. That's what I see in verse 12 is God 
drawing his people back to himself, that he is the faithful father. And even in the midst of all their unfaithfulness, which judgment is deserved for, God is still found as the compassionate, loving father who draws his children back to himself. He says, return to me. Don't love idolatry. Don't love self-sufficiency. Don't love sin. He says, return to me. And he says to return with all your heart. That he is our first love. He is the true king and he deserves all of our heart. And he tells us to return with all our heart. This means that outward religious activity will not suffice. If you are expecting to use fasting as a way to coerce God or manipulate him or to fool him into thinking you're okay when you're not, he cannot be duped. And he doesn't say return to religious activity. He says return to me. With all your heart, I cannot fool God with outward action. He knows my heart. And knowing my heart, he calls on all of us to return, turn away from sin, turn away from other loves, return to him, our first love and true king, and to do it with all of our heart, to do it because we desperately love him. And I want you to notice what accompanies this return. He says in verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. These are all connected in this verse to repentance. And what weeping and mourning and fasting demonstrate is a sorrow for sin. A sorrow for sin from having turned away from God, a sorrow for having loved something more than we love him. See, you can feel guilty about stuff. You and I can feel bad about doing things. But this type of sorrow is one that recognizes how destructive sin is and how it has separated us from our true love. And so here, repentance is accompanied by fasting and weeping and mourning. It is truly a picture of sorrow for our sin. That's what mourning was for. That's what weeping was about. It was sorrow and grief. And what God is calling the people to is to recognize their sin, and to turn away from it into the loving arms of their father and find forgiveness in him alone, that they would actually desire him above their sin. In verse 13, he goes on and says, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Rend is a word, your version may say tear, Uh, One of the things they would do as an outward expression in their day of grief and sorrow was they would tear their clothes. It was an outward picture of what was going on 
internally. You ever grieve that hard? Grieve that hard where you, to show everybody how deep your sorrow was, you tear your clothing. That's what they did. It was an outward expression of grief. But notice God tells his people, don't rend your garments. Rend your what? Don't tear your outside clothing. Tear your heart. Right? This is talking about the fact that sorrow for sin is not sorrow for getting caught. It's sorrow for having offended a holy God. That's a heart issue. And rather than just simply doing outward obedient activities, he calls for an inner heart change, which, by the way, I believe David tells us in Psalm 51 is only possible through the work of God in Christ. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to, me, uh, return to the Lord your God. Again, there's that call to return back to him. How gracious, how loving that God would warn and call his people back and give them time in his patience for them to turn away from sin and to come back to him. But then he gives us the reason why they should return back to God. Why should God get their love? Why should God receive their worship? And notice what he says. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Why return to God? Because he is a gracious God. Because when he forgives, he doesn't hold it over your head. And even though you and I don't deserve his forgiveness, he gives it anyway through his own son. Why? God is gracious. Why should you return to the Lord? Why should you turn away from sin and worship him? Because he is good and gracious to you. And he rescues not because you deserve it, but because he loves. And not only is he gracious, but he says he's merciful. This is the second half of the, the other side of the coin, right? Grace is getting something you don't deserve. What is mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. Not only is God gracious in giving us that which we don't deserve, but he's also merciful. He does not give us what we really do deserve, which is his wrath poured out for our sin. Why should you return to God? Because he's not the ogre in heaven waiting to club you over the head when you come back into his presence. But he is the loving father who tells his children, come to me and find the hope and the love and the joy you've been looking for. He's gracious. He's merciful. When you sin, don't run from God. Run to him. Satan wants us to flee like Adam and Eve in the garden. But God is the one walking quietly, petitioning us back into his loving arms. Like Hosea telling his wife Gomer, return to me the one who really does love you and is gracious to you and is merciful. Why should you return to God? Because there is nobody else who responds to you this way. In our lives, do you know many people who respond this way? Who actually show you grace when you've messed up? 
who's actually merciful to you when you've blown it? How many people do we know who actually exhibit this type of love? And yet God does. That's why we return to him, because God is willing and ready to forgive us. I'm so grateful that God is not stingy with his forgiveness, because I need it a lot. I got to go faster. We're going to be here all day. Verse 13, he is gracious, he is merciful. You probably need to underline these words too. He is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. Why does that matter? Folks, I've been here for over four years now. I know it seems like I've been here a lot longer. I've been here for four years And there is one thing that I feel like I have hit over and over again, and I'm going to keep on hitting it until you are able to echo with me off the top of your head. Where do we find these two phrases that is so crucial to us to understanding the character of God until Jesus comes? Where do we find the phrase slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over throughout the Bible. Where does it originate? Hallelujah. See, my wife has written it down. She's just so you know. She's not sucking up either. She's not. I know she's sitting on the front row and she has it written down. We didn't work this out ahead of time. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. You should memorize Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You should commit it to memory. You should know it. You should be able to see it. You should be able to refer to it because it is the most important verses in the Old Testament that talk about the character of God until Jesus shows up. You need to know Exodus 34, 6 and 7 because in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we are told God is slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. A phrase that is going to be repeated throughout the Old Testament into the New. What does this show us? Once again, God is a patient God. Slow to anger. Oh, (laughs) this is where I know that I have not yet been perfected. I do not yet look like Jesus intends for me to look. You know why? I am not slow to anger. And I'm also not abounding in steadfast love as I should be. But you know who is? Our God and King who looked upon our sin and was slow to anger. He was patient. He was loving and compassionate. I'm grateful that God did not smite me the first time I committed an act of treason against him. I'm grateful that he waited till I was 18 years old, allowed me to hear the gospel, changed my heart to love him, and beckoned me to repentance. I'm grateful for the 18 years of patience God showed me. 
Why? That patience demonstrates what? His abounding and steadfast love. His love just isn't steadfast, right? That it's consistent, it's constant, it keeps going even while people are cheating on him, right? It's not just that his love is steadfast, it's the fact that he abounds in it. He doesn't just have steadfast love, he's got so much of it to give. And that's the beautiful reason why we should return to God. Our sin cannot do that for us. No amount of sin can replace that. And finally, he relents over disaster. God is so compassionate, so gracious, so merciful, so slow to anger, so abounding in steadfast love that when people repent and turn away from their sin, guess what God will do? He will relent from disaster. Instead of pouring out his judgment, instead he will pour out his grace and mercy. Verse 14 Joel says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Maybe if we repent, maybe if we turn away from our sin, God will respond to us in grace and mercy and instead of judgment, maybe God will give us blessing. So Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. He says, blow the trumpet, which by the way, you only blew the trumpet for two main reasons. One, we're about to go to war, or number two, we're about to worship God. So he says, blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Zion, in Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet. I believe this is a call for worship of God. Blow the trumpet, consecrate a fast, set set aside this act for glorious repentance to God. This is a call for an urgent response, and this urgency is an urgency to petition God to relent from the disaster he would bring by repenting because they hate their sin and love God. And if they do that, maybe God will relent from the disaster that their sin deserves. And notice, everybody's a part of it because we're told that they're supposed to call a whole solemn assembly, gather the people consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even them little babies, make sure they get in here too. He says, make sure that the bridegroom leaves his room and the bride her chamber. This is a picture of the community coming together to all petition God at the same time because they believe their sin is serious and they want God to forgive them. So they all gather together. They even get the little babies in there and they say, God, please relent of the disaster that our sin deserves. See, Sin is not just an individual issue. Sin's a corporate issue. Because your individual sin, you come in here with my individual sin, and now we got a real problem because now we're all walking away from God. We're all going our own path. And so not only do we need to confess and repent of sin as individuals, but when we get together as a church, we got to understand we may need to repent of things that we as a church haven't done right, things that we've done as a church that haven't honored God. So they call the whole assembly. Everybody gets in here, including the bride and groom, which just so you know, brides and grooms were given exceptions to a lot of things. It takes a lot to get the bride and the groom to end in the wedding and move on to something else. This is such a solemn assembly. This is such an urgent need. Everyone is to come and to pour out their hearts before God. Seeking his forgiveness. And one of the things they do is as they consecrate the assembly, they fast together. 
They abstain from food out of a devotion. And what they're communicating in that is there's nothing more important to us right now than for God to relent of what he should do towards us. See, when you fast, what you're saying is food is not as important to me right now as this thing is. So not only last week we saw that fasting was connected to praying, right? Showing that, God, there's nothing more important to me right now than to come to you and petition you. The same is true when fasting is connected to confession and repentance. When you're fasting while you are confessing and repenting, you're showing, God, there's nothing more important to me right now than your forgiveness towards my sin and me acknowledging the fact that I've rebelled against you. And so they call everyone together, they pray together, they fast together, they weep together, they mourn together in the hopes that maybe God would forgive them. See, fasting is one of the means God gives us to heighten or intensify our confession and repentance before God to show how desperately we want his forgiveness and how hurtful we know our sin is. Verse 17, God calls on them to petition. And the priests and the ministers are going to intercede for the people. And what are they to plead for? Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. Based on God's character found in verse 13, they are to pray that God would spare his people. You know what we find in Joel chapter 3? The promise of God that those who repent of sin will find his forgiveness and they will be spared of the judgment against their sin. So what do we see? Fasting is connected to petitioning God. It is connected to repentance from sin. And this fasting is not just an external action that we do in the hopes that God will owe us something. It should flow from a repentant heart, a heart that recognizes the need, the desperate need for God's forgiveness, a heart that recognizes the seriousness of sin and that type of fasting, the one that comes from a heart that's broken over sin, that type of fasting displays a love for God that is greater than a love for sin. And so by abstaining from food, they're demonstrating there's nothing more precious to them than the forgiveness of God found in the repentance from their sin. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., said this. He said, the greatest fast is abstaining from sin. In fasting, they're showing their brokenness, their sorrow over their sin, the petitioning of God that he would forgive them, but the greatest fast we could ever do would be to abstain from that which breaks the heart of our God. And so we demonstrate by giving up food, we demonstrate the seriousness of our plea but we need to realize that any forgiveness from God must stem from the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. In order for us to be restored, our sin must be paid for. And there's only one whose death was sufficient to cover our sin, and that was Jesus Christ. And so no amount of fasting can substitute. No amount of fasting can earn your forgiveness. No amount of fasting can make us right before God. But you know who does? Jesus does. 
And so every bit of our fasting should be connected to a love and a worship of Christ because he alone is the one who petitions for us and intercedes for us in God's presence and says, these are my people forgiven by his blood. That the only reason we have an audience before God at all in our petitioning and in our fasting is because Christ has first rescued us by his blood shed and his resurrection from the dead. And so what we need as Christians is to realize that fasting is one of the ways in which we can confess and repent sin with intensification. It's one of the things that intensifies our prayers to God and demonstrates that we love him more than food, more than anything else, and we long for him to receive glory and to relent from punishing our sin. And we call upon the blood of Jesus who intercedes for us before the Father. So what does this mean? It means that if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I need you to see that just like those in the book of Joel, every person was in need of this forgiveness. Every person needed to petition God. And if you're here this morning breathing air in and out, you need forgiveness from God for your sin. Every person has sinned and rebelled against God. Every person has sought to be their own king instead of Jesus. And we need the rescue that only Christ can provide. We deserve punishment. And if we're going to be spared of the punishment our sin deserves, it's only going to come from the perfect sacrifice of Jesus who absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for our sin. He paid the penalty. He made the payment to set us free from our bondage and slavery to sin. And he alone is the one who does this. There is no one else who can rescue your soul. There is no one else who can make you right before God. There is no one who can bring you into right fellowship with the king than Jesus alone. You need to trust in him. You need to trust in him. Don't Rely on external activity. Don't try to fast your way into heaven. Trust in Christ alone. Christians, we wage war against sin every day. We have the spirit of God who dwells within us and he guides us in the truth. He convicts us of our sin and he points us over and over again to the beauty of Jesus and his sacrifice in our place. We have that blessed hope and that help that God himself guides and steers and convicts and points us to Jesus. But even when we sin, we still have an advocate in Christ who pleads his blood over us before his father. That when we stand before God, it's not a list of everything we've done to offend him, but instead it's Jesus next to us pleading his blood saying my blood was shed to cover this one and we need to be active because of that we need to be active in our battle against sin knowing that we have victory in Jesus that no amount of sin can separate us from the love of Jesus and in times of desperate confession and repentance when we're turning to God and pleading the blood of Jesus, fasting may appropriately accompany that plea. You may need to fast as you confess. You may need to fast as you repent to show your devotion and your heartfelt love for Jesus, to not take sin lightly, but to realize that the forgiveness of God is an amazing gift, and we might fast as we repent and confess sin to God. And as a church, we need to realize that sin is not simply an individual issue but it's a corporate issue. And we as a church must actively confess and repent of our sin corporately. And just so you know, we as a church may need to fast 
in those seasons of confession and repentance. That we, in times of especially desperate pleading before God, may need to fast as a way of preparing our hearts to worship God and to seek his amazing forgiveness in Christ. Listen, fasting is seen throughout the Bible, but here in Joel chapter 2 is a wonderful picture of how the people gathered together and petitioned God that he might forgive them of their sin, and they fasted in that time to show their immense love and devotion to God and the heartfelt mourning over their sin. I pray that fasting will not be something that is reduced to just a a simple thing we can do here and there just to make ourselves feel better or to feel more spiritual, but that fasting would be used as we petition God, as we confess and repent of sin to demonstrate that we are sorrowful over what we've done, that we are broken, that we are grieving over what our sin does, and we demonstrate to God in those moments that there is nothing more valuable and precious to us than him, than his love, his forgiveness. And so maybe that will be appropriate in times to come, but I want you to see that from Joel chapter 2, fasting was connected to repentance and confession, and we need to realize that God's not interested in external activity. As the psalmist tells us, Psalm 51, David says, God is interested in a lowly and a contrite heart that hates sin and loves him. May that be our plea. And may any fasting we do be because we love Jesus that much. Would you pray with me? Uh, For all of you in the room, I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what uh, matters are pressing in your life and in your heart. I don't know what kind of sin you're battling. I don't know what kind of uh, struggles you're facing. But I do hope this morning that each one of us in the room will turn away from sin, that we will turn towards our loving God, that we will seek forgiveness that is found only in Christ alone, and that he would be our boast. And so this morning, whether you need to do that for the first time, maybe you've been trying to be a good enough person that God would forgive you because of doing enough good activity, I want to, I want to urge you and petition you that the Bible says that our good deeds can do nothing to rescue us from our sin. They can do nothing to make us right before God. They can do nothing to cause God to love us more. And God's not asking you to do good stuff. He's not asking you to go to church in the hopes that it would make you right. He's calling and urging every single one of us to believe only in the blood of Jesus, to trust only in his sacrifice on the cross. So this morning, stop trying to be good enough and rest in the perfected work, the perfect work of Jesus on the cross in our place. Believe in his bloodshed and trust in Christ alone. And as Christians in the room, my prayer is that your walk with Jesus will not be something that's just an addendum to your life. That your worship of Jesus is not something that we do when we get time. But that our allegiance and devotion to Christ makes up everything of who we are and it infiltrates everything we do every single day. And maybe this morning, you need to cast aside sin, turn away from the sin that so easily entangles And maybe this morning you need to confess as a believer that you have strayed from Jesus and you desperately need his forgiveness. 
this morning, maybe you're walking with Jesus and, and things are going well. And maybe you just need to spend time purposely every day committing yourself to the worship and honor of Jesus alone. Maybe there are pockets in your life as a Christian where you quickly turn to your own will and your own strength and your own power. Maybe we need to set that before Jesus and ask him to show us how desperately we need him in every area of life. Maybe you have questions about what it means to be a part of a church family or what it means to serve and follow after Christ in discipleship. Just know that after the service is over, I'm happy to talk to anyone. Stick around, come forward, I'll be happy to share with you. But this morning, do business with Christ. Do business with God. Heavenly Father, I love you. And I am so grateful that your forgiveness is so immense and so unbelievable that, Father, you look upon people like us and, Father, that you make salvation a possibility. Father, that you actually rescue folks like us. And, Father, I pray for people in this room who maybe have tried to be good enough that, God, that you would love them more or that you might do something. But, God, you're not asking them to do that. God, you're calling on them to trust that Jesus alone can rescue. So, Father, draw people to yourself. Draw sinners who desperately need your forgiveness. God, draw them into a saving relationship with Christ that they might know his goodness and they might sing his praises. And Father, I pray this morning for Christians in the room. Father, help us to see that Jesus is not part of our life. Jesus is our life. He is who we are. We are nothing apart from him. And so, Father, help us to live every day knowing that Christ alone is the one who is worthy of all worship and praise. And Father, may fasting and may prayer and may confession not be things we do when we just find time to do it. May it be a daily walk with you, a daily practice of, of God yearning for you above all things. And so, Father, give all of us as Christians in the room a desperate love for you and an adoration of Jesus that would make us quickly run and confess and repent of sin. Father, do that because we know that we are welcomed into your presence, that you do forgive, that there's nothing to fear in coming to you. There is great hope and joy in repentance and returning to our God. So, Father, may you help us as Christians to live lives of repentance and faith towards you. And, Father, help us as a church. Help us to repent. God, of anything we've done that has dishonored you, God, of anything in this church that doesn't look like Christ, Father, I pray you'll take it. And I pray, God, you would help us to see that your kingdom is the only thing that matters. And, Father, may we together, as people who have been redeemed by Jesus, may we together pursue you. Father, to know your son Jesus and to make him known to the ends of the earth. Use us, God, for your glory. Oh, Father, I'm so glad that you are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. God, we pray that we would love you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.